Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study the word and focus on the word, and then we will begin our study in Revelation 13, all the way back there again. Okay, let's... uh, Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're so thankful we can be here tonight that we have the freedom in this nation to gather as believers and to freely teach your word to explore all of the implications and applications of your word as it relates to every area of human thought. Father, we pray that we would continue to enjoy this freedom and that even though there are groups and organizations and people and forces at work to take that freedom away from us. We pray that you would override, that you would protect us, and that you would watch over these freedoms, that your word might be freely taught, the gospel proclaimed. And, Father, we just pray that uh, we might not take for granted that which we have because it's such a wonderful uh, blessing and it's a wonderful privilege that so few believers in history have ever had. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study and that we may be encouraged by the fact that history is under your control and that there are no accidents in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Thursday night we had a tribute to Pastor Theme, and we had a couple of little technical glitches. Now, there's nothing we can do about solving the problem on the video because that just gets a little too... We're trying to edit all that. But on the MP3, uh, the three men who we were Skyping in, Dan Ingram and John Hintz and Charlie Clough, are recording what they were intending to say in a nice, clean recording. Then we're going to edit that into the, uh, into the MP3 that we have and clean it up. And so that'll be a nice uh, presentation. So that'll take us about another week to get all of that together. You're going to do the video, too? Okay. Okay, well, that, that'll be interesting to see how you do that. You're good. You're good. You know, with the memorial services last week at Baraka and all of the things and the other night with some of the glitches and just from time constraints, um, there were a couple of things that I had wanted to say or stories I wanted to tell that I didn't tell. I thought, well, maybe this week I'll tell a couple of colonel stories. Two that I thought of today were... One happened when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was in the teen class, and I sort of woke up to listen to doctrine when I was 14 because that's when they started having the Wednesday night teen class. So we'd go to teen class and sit there, and that first night there was somebody who talked to somebody, and they got reamed out. And then there was somebody else, some some blonde in the back that kept turning and whispering at somebody next to him, and Bob would say, well, I'm getting tired of looking at your left ear, girl. What's your name? Who are your parents? 
So after a couple, after him doing that two or three times, the rest of us realized this was serious and we better pay attention or we were going to be mightily embarrassed as not only there, but when we got home. So I started figuring out how to take notes because he started calling on people after about 15 minutes or so. He would call on somebody to stand up and uh, read back the last five points on the doctrine of the angelic conflict or uh, reconciliation, whatever it was he was teaching that night. And so that's where we, I really learned, and I think a lot of kids learned to, um, to take notes. And that was such a, it was packed on Wednesday nights. There were, uh, teenagers there from many different churches. I know that because I had three cousins who were all kind of between ninth grade and twelfth grade, and they went to South Main Baptist, that bastion of great orthodoxy. For those of you who don't know, that was tongue-in-cheek humor. Uh, but my uh, uh, their parents were my what, second cousin, so they were my second cousin once removed. If you can figure that out, you're better than I am. But they were there every every Wednesday night. In fact, one of them still uh, writes me every now and then. He still listens, and so that laid a great foundation for a, a lot of uh, a lot of the teenagers. And but we were mischievous as well. And I, I think it was about my sophomore or junior year. I had a friend, and we're still friends, and we've been running around together for a long time. It's really good he's in Oklahoma now and not here because it's just better that way. And we would get into Bible class, and if he was there early or I was there early, we'd go up to the overhead, and we would write TSSRA in really small print across the overhead so that every Wednesday night he would flip on the overhead projector, and he would look down, he'd look up there, and there's this little fine print, TSSRA. And this would go on. We did this for about a year. He never knew what that meant. It means the South shall rise again. And then one, it was May 1st, I think it May 1st on a Wednesday night on, uh, it must have been 19, early 69. We went in early, and we hung a Confederate flag from the pulpit. Now, today, that has a different connotation than what it had back then. It's just like that was a totally different world. And so we thought we might get in trouble. But he came in, and it was May Day. And May Day has this connotation with communism. That's a big day to celebrate uh, communism in Russia. And so he gave us a 30-minute impromptu ad hoc discourse on communism and why communism stood for everything that was 180 degrees opposite of what the Confederacy stood for. So that was just one of the fun little stories. But one thing that John Hintz and I were talking about today, we remember back, this was like 64, I think. I was just maybe 13 or 14, and he was already an old man. But um, Bob would get John Wurlitzer. And back then, for those of you who are younger or new to Houston, John Wurlitzer was the director of the Houston Zoo. And he would get John Wurlitzer to come over to Baraka two or three times to do different things. And so he came out. We had a survival night on on a Friday night for teens. And John Wurlitzer came over, and he um, and so we, they had a bunch of us, just a bunch of guys were all crowded down here on the front row behind that solid that, that solid barricade that's there, if you remember. And we're all there, and we're all looking over, and he opened this bag and popped out about three rattlesnakes. 
There were about ten boys that just went up in the air and went back about four rows and sat down again. And so, and then he turned to Bob and he said, you know, I need to milk this rattlesnake. Do you have a pen I can use? And of course, you know, Bob never had a cheap big pen or anything like that. So he pulls out this pen <laughs> and Wurlitzer used it to milk the, uh, to milk the rattlesnake. And when he got done, he handed it back to Bob and Bob said, no, that's okay. You can keep it. <laughs> so there are lot, lots of, uh, fun kernels for it. Back in the fifties and sixties, there was a lot it was different culture as as time went by okay we are studying in revelation chapter 13 but someone asked me the other day about doing a little summary again of what we've gone through now it's been 10 weeks i went back to look at it and with vacation and a few other things it may seem like it was a lot longer as we've gone through this study on the antichrist but we actually started 10 lessons ago. So we spent 10 lessons studying these passages. And I have done detailed studies in the past where I've just listed all the points on the Antichrist or something of, of that nature. But every now and then as a pastor, you have to go back and you have to work your way through these passages again. You've grown. You've learned more. There's other issues that have come up, other questions that are raised, and you have to work through that again. And you just can't, it, you can't do it in, in a hurry. Now, most of the time, you may think we're wandering through high weeds and it gets a little rugged at times. And I understand that, but it, you ought to see what I have to wander through in order to get through this again, to, to rethink it. So once you do all that, then you can synthesize again, but it takes hours of detail work before you ever get to good uh, good synthesis. So uh, what I want to do is hit each of the major chapters that we looked at, just summarize two or three bullet points on each one as to what we learned there. In Daniel chapter 7, we learned that the final kingdom is the uh, second stage of the Roman Empire, four kingdoms that are highlighted in the history of the kingdom of man, and the final form is actually stage two in the Roman Empire, usually referred to as the revived Roman Empire. Daniel 7, 7 to 9, and 19 to 25. Second thing we learned is the Antichrist is referred to in that passage, that chapter, as the little horn. He's actually the 11th horn that arises after a 10-horn or 10-nation alliance develops. So first there's the 10-nation confederacy, then he appears on the scene as an 11th horn in Daniel 7, 24. Third, we saw that the Antichrist overthrows three kingdoms, he tears three horns out by the root, according to Daniel 7.24, and he assumes control of the alliance. Fourth, the Antichrist is depicted in terms of his character as arrogant. Again and again and again in all these passages, it's arrogance, arrogance, arrogance. He's boastful. He's proud. This is his major characteristic. He elevates himself above everything. The Antichrist is arrogant in 7.8. He's described as menacing and terrifying in 7.19 to 20. He is militarily powerful and victorious. He always defeats his enemies, it seems, 7.23, and he persecutes believers. Now, we'll see all of these alluded to again in our passage tonight in Revelation chapter 13. So there's new information given in Revelation 13, but what's given there helps identify the person of that first beast because it pulls together all these threads from back in Daniel. Then we went to Daniel 8. In Daniel 8, the focus is on the ram and the goat, and we have 
and, and that does not depict the Antichrist at all. The goat has two horns, one horn, and we have another little horn that comes up, but it's not the same little horn. It comes out of a different kingdom, comes out of Greece and not Rome, and it is an, uh, an ancient historical figure who is chosen by God the Holy Spirit to foreshadow or to depict certain aspects of the character and the activities of the Antichrist. And I pointed out three ways in which uh, Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows the Antichrist. The first is in terms of his character. He's brilliant. He's arrogant. He's insolent in terms of his orientation to divine authority. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's subtle like the serpent in the garden. He is deceptive. He's manipulative, and he wins. He's able to solve problems and work out solutions to international difficulties that no one else can solve. In terms of culture, he is antagonistic to all divine viewpoint and establishment truth. He attacks the truth. He hates the truth. He attacks the saints who represent the truth, and he desecrates the tribulation temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And he is the control freak of all control freaks. He controls through taxation. He controls the economy. We'll see this again and again. We'll see it in Revelation 13 that uh, the Antichrist controls people through money and through the economy. Now, these trends are there in all manifestations of kingdoms in the kingdom of man. And we forget that the as great as the Constitution of the United States of America is, the United States of America is not, never was intended by God to be what the Puritans said, a king, a, a, a light set on a hill. It was just another manifestation, though uh, much more establishment-oriented, biblically-oriented at the beginning, uh, just another manifestation of the kingdom of man. So we have control through taxation, through just brute Power brutalizes people. You think of the way Stalin just had a reign of terror. In the early 1930s, Stalin, uh, who was paranoid, decided that he couldn't trust his officer corps, and he killed, had it murdered or executed, uh, almost 70% of his the upper echelon of his officer corps. This happened between about 1934 and 19. 36 or 37. That's why he, they had such trouble when Hitler reneged on the treaty with them and attacked him in, 19, in the summer of 1941 is because uh, Stalin had basically eviscerated his army of leadership and uh, it took him a while to recover from that. And he also is responsible for murdering somewhere between uh, 28 million, and some estimates that I've read will go as high as 70 or 80 million, although most will put it somewhere around 30 or 40 million Russians during his reign of terror. Hitler was just a wannabe compared to Stalin. And so power uh, is used and wielded by these uh, arrogant uh, leaders in the kingdom of man to control and to uh, uh, keep people uh, to serve them. And then the third characteristic is deification. He sets himself up functioning uh, as a god. In Daniel 9, we saw that the Antichrist is the prince of the people who is to come, referring to the fact that the people who, who are to come are the uh, 
Romans, who destroyed the temple in AD 70. So he is Roman. He's European. He comes out of the revived Roman Empire. Secondly, we saw that he enters into a peace treaty with Israel in Daniel 9.27. And third, that he will desecrate the temple called the abomination of desolation, and he will set himself up as God and to be worshipped as God in the temple. Later we'll see in Revelation 13 that he sets up an idol to himself to be worshipped in the temple. And then in Daniel uh, 11.36, we see that he's arrogant, that he exalts himself above all deities in Daniel 11.36 and 37. Uh, second, that he is on the historical scene just prior to the end of wrath. That's an important point because it, I think it uh, wipes out some of the arguments for the preterists. The Antichrist comes up right near the end of God's wrath in 11.36. Third, he's empowered by a foreign god, which is Satan, 1139. Fourth, at the end, he will be drawn into a military engagement in Israel in the Middle East uh, with the king of the north and the king of the south as his uh, antagonists in 1140 and 44. And the king of the north probably represents Syria or a Syrian-Turkish-Iraq alliance, something of that nature, and the king of the south represents an, uh, an Egyptian uh, threat. Fifth, he will control the economic resources of the Middle East. Again, we see that economic issue as he controls the people. He has all the wealth of Egypt at his, at his disposal. And then sixth, he will be destroyed by God in 11, uh, 1146. That ends his career. Then we went to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 9. And there we saw that the tribulation will not come and the Antichrist will not be revealed until the departure not apostasy, apostasy should be correctly translated as the departure there, uh, until the departure occurs. Second, we saw that the Antichrist is referred to as the son of perdition, same phrase that's used to describe Judas. Some people have the idea that therefore the Antichrist is Judas resurrected. That's just fanciful. Those kind of people need to work for the Midnight Globe or... National Enquirer or something like that. Third, uh, he's called the lawless one because he rejects the law of God and he wants to be a law unto himself. Okay, so that summarizes it very quickly. Now, we go back to Revelation 13, Revelation 13.1, and now we're going to go through these first eight verses, or we should cover them tonight, and it's going to, we're going to realize how much value we now have to come to this text because of all that we've studied as we've gone through these passages in Daniel and, and uh, Second Thessalonians. Revelation 13, 1 reads, And, Dan, um, and I, some um, uh, manuscripts say uh, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, but it's probably better reading is I. Uh, it seems to be uh, that it is... It is the Apostle John who is describing this, and this is a reference to him. It's not the uh, Nestle Island or the UBS text. That's what the NU stands for. But we should go with the majority text reading as well as the uh, uh, Texas Receptus on this point. John stands on the sand of the sea. Now, this is similar scenario to what we had in Daniel chapter 7. I'll put those verses up in a minute. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had a vision, and he saw this, these beasts coming out of the sea. That's the backdrop for understanding Revelation 13.1. So he says, I, 
uh, stood on the sand of the sea. Then I saw a beast. Daniel saw four beasts. He see, John sees one beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. This beast is a composite, as we'll see in verse 2, of the four beasts that Daniel saw coming out of the sea. So this is the final manifestation, final representation in history of the kingdom of man. It is stage two in the uh, fourth beast, the Roman Empire, and he's represented by having ten horns and seven heads. The ten horns represent the ten nations. The seven heads represent the... Um, Seven powers after the Antichrist takes up three of them. And on his horns were ten diadems. The ten diadems represent uh, rulership, represent power. They're diademos. They're not Stephanus crowns, which are reward crowns. These are rulership crowns. And on his heads were blasphemous names. That identifies each of them as being in rebellion against God. Each of these are apostate nations in Europe, which is no surprise because Europe is basically apostate. They have, uh, they were apostate for many, many centuries via the Roman Catholic Church, and then they are now apostate because they've rejected that, rejected all religion, and if there is any active religion in Europe, it is Islam, which is growing by leaps and bounds. And so the focus here is on the uh, this beast coming up out of the sea, I pointed out that the sea represents the Gentile nation, same as it does in Daniel chapter 7. There has to be continuity there. Now, when you read the various commentators or listen to people who teach, there are four different options that are given. Some say that it sim- symbolizes just evil in history. And there's some truth to each of these and some truth, of course, to that because it represents uh, the kingdom of man, the unruly uh, the the chaotic uh, nations, and they are governed by cosmic thinking. So others say that it represents unbelieving humanity. Uh, third, some say that to the Jewish people of ancient times, the sea was a source of satanic monsters. That's uh, folks who try to make it a little bit more of a mythological thing. And then... Um, then there are others who say it's not just unbelieving humanity, it is uh, Gentile uh, humanity, and the sea really indicates that this comes from an area around the Mediterranean. But I think that pushes it too much because you have the four kingdoms coming out of the, the, the Daniel saw, and at least Babylon and, and, and Persia were not located, even though they conquered around the Mediterranean area. They're not thought of as primarily a, a Mediterranean power. So I think it just basically it represents, it represents the Gentiles, unbelieving mass of Gentiles. It will be contrasted with the second beast who comes out of the earth when we get down to verse 9. And because of that, there are many people who want to say that that indicates the land, Israel. But it, it, and while I've always been taught that and have probably taught that in the past, I know I have, if you do a word study of the Greek word geis, G-E-S, in Revelation, this would be the only time it meant just the land of Israel. It's used dozens of times in, in Revelation. In every other place, it refers to the earth itself. And so there's just this contrast, and there's nothing that necessarily means that that is is Israel and that he is therefore uh, Jewish. I think Dr. Walvoord, in his earlier commentary of Daniel, took it that way, and then when he wrote 
later on, uh, he changed his mind and said, well, it's hard to argue that that use of the word geis there, there's nothing contextual to limit it to Israel only. And so we have to be uh, be careful of things of, of that nature. So Daniel 7, 2 and 3, which I alluded to, takes us to Daniel's uh, vision where he said, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven, which shows the control that heaven has over the the nations and over the history of the world. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And so the sea seems to be the mass of unbelieving humanity, primarily Gentile humanity, and as it represents the evil of the cosmic system and... All of this is brought together. So each of these different views that I pointed out uh, have an element of truth in them, but it's not a case of either or. It's both and. They're all they're all true. In Revelation 17, 1 and 2 are actually 1 through 3, and then 17, 15 also refers to this, refers to the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is the end-time kingdom. The beast is represented there as the great harlot who has... Uh, polluted herself with her immoralities, with false religion. Uh, in verse 2, she is the one who committed immoralities with the kings of the earth. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk by the wine of her immorality, and he carried me away into the, in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So uh, it identifies that woman with the the great harlot who sits on many waters. So it's the same idea. It's the control of those uh, the, the Gentile nations and the, representing the kingdom of man. Revelation 17, 15, and John speaking, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So that the Bible interprets itself, tells you that the, the waters represent the great mass of Gentile nations. Then we come to Revelation 13:2. All of this we've studied before, just by way of reminder. The beast which I saw, John says, was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Notice his order. It's the reverse of what Daniel saw. Daniel saw first a, a, a lion with the wings of an eagle. That was Babylon. Then he saw the lopsided bear, that was the Media Persian Empire, and then he saw the leopard, and that was Greece. And so now he mentions these in, John mentions these in reverse order, showing that this kingdom go, picks up all of the characteristics of those previous kingdoms going all the way back. And the dragon gave him his power. Now there's a lot of discussion as to whether the beast is Babylon, I mean is, is the kingdom, or the king. And in the Bible, the king and the kingdom are, are often spoken of in the same way. The king represents the kingdom. And so when you talk about the beast, the beast is the leopard, the bear, the lion. That's the whole empire. That's the culture. And what gives him the power, the ruler, all of this is personified in the ruler, and he gets his power from the dragon. So again, just as as he's empowered by Satan in First in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, I think it's verse seven. 
Uh, here it's restated again. The dragon, who is identified as Satan, gave him his power and throne and great authority. So all that he has comes from Satan. And God in his permissive will has allowed this to take place and allowed evil to reach its greatest flowering at this time in order to show the ultimate consequences of unrestrained evil in human history. And the Second Thessalonians passage talks about how the restrainer, which is God the Holy Spirit, is going to be removed during this period. God just pulls back all the stops, and for seven years he's just going to let Satan uh, do everything he can. He's just going to let it rip. And if it weren't for God stepping in, Jesus Christ returning at the end, Everything would just self-destruct. Mankind, the demons probably would just destroy themselves. So he's going to, the beast is going to have power, his throne, his authority all comes from Satan. Then we get into one of those fun little passages people like to speculate on in verse 3 related to the, the wound, the head wound of the, of the, um, of the Antichrist. No, it's not Abraham Lincoln. No, it's not John Kennedy. Everybody always comes up with these things. You know, you, they, they figure out how to turn those names, Abraham Lincoln, into 666 or John Fitzgerald Kennedy into 666. And it's just speculation. These people ought to go to work for the National Enquirer. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. This is an authenticating miracle that is going to appear to validate and authenticate the beast as being from God. He is a substitute Messiah. He's not coming along and saying he's not God. He claims to be God, and he is going to be that substitute Messiah. So he's going to have his authenticating resurrection it is a counterfeit resurrection, not because he's not really raised from the dead, but because God isn't the source of the resurrection. Now that gets us into some of the um, issues here that we need to uh, need to talk about in trying to understand this this particular passage. First issue is what do we mean by the head here? I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Now, if the heads, remember he had seven heads and ten horns. If the heads represent a nation, then what this would be saying is it's as if one of those nations is destroyed and thought to be dead and gone, and that it comes back in history. Now, in Philip Goodman's book, The Assyrian uh, Antichrist, he argues that position. But the problem is the head here isn't a nation. It's the individual, the leader of that, that nation. If the, the Antichrist is not one of the seven or one of the ten. Remember, he is the eleventh horn that comes up. So it's distinct. This is, this is, um, so, so if you're going to take the heads here as if as, as a nation, I'm getting confused there. Let me restate that. If the head here represents a nation, you have the ten nations um, that are all there. This would indicate that one of them died and came back at that time because it's talking about the existence of those 
of those uh, those ten nations. Another view that is put forth is that this represents one of the heads is Assyria, and that Assyria is going to come back, or it's even suggested that Tiglath-Pileser or Ashurbanipal or Sennacherib or uh, Antiochus Epiphanes even is going to be resurrected, or Nero is going to be resurrected. Nero committed suicide in AD 68. So these are these some of these different uh, different views. But the reason it's the best best reason why it's not a nation is found in the context. If you just look down into the second half of the chapter where it talks about the uh, false prophet, we're told that one of his signs that validates him as well is when he restores life to the beast. He deceives those who, in verse, is it verse 14? Yeah, verse 12. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now that's talking about an individual. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. See, he's not worshiping. Verse 12 isn't talking about worshiping a nation. It's talking about worshiping an individual. Verse 13, uh, he has these other signs. And Second Thessalonians uh, talked about lying, lying wonders in Second Thessalonians 2.3. So he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Is that going to be real fire? Yeah. I'm going to go back to Second Thess 2 in a minute because I think I made some comments on it last week. I want to make sure you get this. Um, he even makes fire come down from heaven. It's not false fire. A counterfeit miracle means that he's just doing some sort of sleight of hand. But he's doing real miracles. It's the reason they're false, and that's really how it's stated in the Greek. It's a, it's pseudos. It's a lie. It, and, and that, the idea is that what he's claiming is that it is God who's performing the miracle, but God's not the source of the power. Satan is. Satan is allowed by God to do certain things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do. Who granted it to him? God the Father. It's God's permissive will. Granted to do in the sight of the beast, uh, telling those who dwell on the earth to take an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So he's, he's wounded by the sword and he lived. Now, the word that's used for wounded there and the word that's used for uh, wound or fatal wound earlier is the Greek word plague, which is where we get our English word. Plague, for all you word lovers out there. And it context indicates whether it's a wound. For example, the Samaritan who's uh, minding his own business, walking along the road back to Samaria and gets waylaid by robbers, is beaten up. And he's beaten and pummeled. The word plague is used there to describe uh, his wounds. They're not fatal. So there are other words uh, that are used to indicate this was a fatal uh, fatal wound. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it states that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. Now, remember the, the Egyptian magicians in Pharaoh's court. They duplicated, through the power of Satan, 
some of the miracles that God was using to authenticate Moses. When they put down their rods, they turned into serpents. Doesn't say they it was it was fake. I mean, they did real things. It wasn't just a David a fancy David Copperfield show. They were doing some some miraculous things, but they were under the power of Satan. Now, one of the things that I've wrestled with over the years as I've as I've studied this is that there are some people who argue that Satan cannot create life. This would be the creation of life. In Genesis chapter 1, bara is used, and bara is is your main creation verb, and only God is the subject of bara in all of the Old Testament. But man can asa, one of the other verbs, to make or to do or to create. Man can also yatser, which means to... which means to mold or shape something. So you have different types of creation. Now, Satan cannot create life ex nihilo out of nothing. And Satan cannot make something alive that was never alive before. But Satan can create a pseudo-resurrection. And that's what happens here. So that whether he actually dies or whether he truly dies, is not really clear from the text. But what is clear is everybody believes that he died. The evidence is there to convince everyone that the Antichrist had a fatal head wound, that he died, and that the false prophet brings him back back from the dead. Now, the reason I think... That the, the, that he is truly slain is because in Revelation 13, uh, 3, it states, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. That's the, uh, uh New American Standard Translation. New King James says his, um, as if it had been slain. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. That exact Greek phrase, See, some people might look at that and say, see, it's as if it had been slain, but it really wasn't. Well, wait a minute, you've got a problem with that. Revelation 5, 6 describes the throne room of God, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, same phrase in the Greek, as though it had been slain. Now, was Jesus really slain? Yes, he was. So this phrase is used to describe both the death of Christ and what happens to the Antichrist. So it appears to me that, the, that, the, that the, the, just on the basis of the language that there is a genuine death that occurs and he is brought back to life miraculously and this then is used to claim that he must be God. Now, there's a reason for this. I don't, didn't put this up on the slide, but if you look back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 13, there's a test for the validation of a, of a prophet. And in verse 1, Moses says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. See, he's saying if, if they make a prediction and it comes to pass or they perform a miracle and it actually happens, Moses doesn't challenge the validity or authenticity of the miracle. See, that's what we usually do. We hear about somebody like uh, uh, some some uh, 
uh, Amy Simple McPherson or Catherine Kuhlman or somebody like that, and they bring people down, or, or Benny Hinn, and they have... Um, they they say claim to perform a healing. We say ah that was just a that was just a hoax. Well, it probably was in their case, but that doesn't mean that we're justified logically in extrapolating that to every miracle that doesn't seem to be right. There are miracles that appear to be real miracles, powers that appear to be real power that is tapping into satanic, the limited satanic ability under the permissive will of God uh, that is used, that God allows for the purpose of what? Testing people. That's what Deuteronomy 13 goes on to say. And the sign, let's say the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you. Then in verse 3, Moses says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dream, just because he brings somebody back from the dead. Just because they heal somebody of cancer, just because they uh, are able to do something that you can't explain, and it seems to test out to be a legitimate miracle, doesn't mean that you should follow it. We're going to assume there are miraculous, supernatural things that happen, but that doesn't mean it's from God. That's why it moves from being a true miracle to a false miracle, not because it's phony, but because it's not from God. It's the source that matters, not the miracle. And that's what Moses is saying. Don't get deceived just because somebody is able to do something uh, miraculous. The issue is what they say, not what they do. It's content and that content has to be consistent with the rest of the word of God. So he says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreamers, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what's going to happen is the test of all tests is when this first beast, the Antichrist, who's the setting himself up to be the head of his own religion, is raised from the dead. He dies and he's resurrected. Now we have a pseudo-Messiah. We have the unholy trinity of the false prophet, uh, the uh, Antichrist and Satan, and the false, uh, and the, uh, the Antichrist is functioning like the counterfeit uh, Messiah, like the second person of the trinity is going to have his own resurrection, but it, it doesn't validate anything. It's a test to show who will, who is truly following the Lord and who is not. And as a result of that, in Revelation 13.4, we read that the people, the, the earth dwellers, that's who this is talking about. Let's go back and look at Revelation 13.3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, the whole earth, this is a term that refers to this concept of earth dwellers. We see it in Revelation uh, thirteen twelve that the first beast causes the earth, or the second beast will cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Earth dwellers is a technical term for unbelievers who will never trust in Christ as Messiah in the tribulation period. It is not a term that means simply people who live on the earth. 
or people who are destined to live on the earth or anything like that. It is a term to relate to their orientation is earthbound human viewpoint, if you will, pure human viewpoint from the soul outward versus those who have a divine viewpoint from at least salvation. And so that's that's the contrast. The earth dweller is the unbeliever who goes through the tribulation and will never, ever be positive, never respond to the gospel, never saved. And then there's the, the believers, and there are those who become believers during the tribulation. Those are really the three groups of people you have, but the earth dwellers are that set group. You don't know who they are, but... Uh, they're the ones who at the end of the tribulation, the ones who never, ever trusted Christ as Savior, even in the tribulation period. So go back to uh, Revelation 13, 4. They, that is the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, now note saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? See, that's that question, who's able to wage war with him, is really assigning omnipotence to the beast. Nobody can defeat him. He's like God. So it is a religious statement in and of itself. Now, when we look at, at, um, at this passage, we see three things. First of all, that the beast is worshipped. But second, we see that the dragon is worshipped. The dragon is worshipped. Maybe not everyone understands that by worshipping the beast, they're worshipping Satan, but there's a lot of them that will understand that. Those who are in the inner circle, those who are in the, those who are tribulation temple, uh, devotees of the Antichrist will know that it's really Satan that they are worshiping. Uh, they worship the dragon, the text says. Doesn't mean they, they, it says it very clearly. They understand who they're worshiping. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast. So it's clear they wor- they're worshiping both. And so this sets up the context of the reign of the Antichrist to be one of an end-time ecumenical religion that's going to have characteristics, I believe, of many of the world's religions so that everybody can come under the same umbrella, the same tent, and they can all feel like uh, all roads lead somehow to God, and we're here, and it's those Christians out there, and they'll they'll still be Christians in the tribulation period. They're not church-age Christians, but they're called Christians because they follow Christ. That's what happened uh, in Damascus in Acts, so they're called or in Antioch, rather, in Acts, they're called Christians because they're devoted to Christ. And the Christians are the ones who believe in exclusivity, that there's only one way. There's only one way to God, and that is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will be this harsh division. The religion, the arrogant, self-righteous religion of the Antichrist in the end times will make it clear that everybody has to declare their religious devotion. And that, we will see when we get into it next time, is going to be done through the uh, symbolism of the taking the mark of the beast. Taking the mark of the beast isn't like filling out an application for a credit card, and all of a sudden one day you go, oops, you know, golly, I got this mark on my hand, and I didn't really know what that meant. No, it's going to be very clear. It's clear from Revelation that to get the mark will involve some sort of religious commitment 
to the Antichrist. And so that's why the text makes it clear. No one who takes the mark is saved because by this time, no one who is a believer would dare take the mark. They know exactly what that means. And the scriptures are very clear that nobody's going to come along and just say, oh, golly gee, I didn't really know what that meant. So he is going to elevate himself as God. This fits with what we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and in 2.10, that he opposes all religion and exalts himself above all that is called God, and he, so he will sit as God in the temple of God. Even though it's an apostate temple in the tribulation period, it is still called the temple of God. Even the temple at the time of Jesus that was the Herodian temple that was dominated by the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was called the temple of God because of its geographical location, because that was what was supposed to be there. So it is still called the temple of God, even though it's during an apostate period. It was still called the temple of God even during the apostasy of Manasseh in the Old Testament, because that's what belongs there, not that uh, horrible piece of blasphemy that stands there now. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Second Thessalonians 2.10 said, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no love of the truth, no acceptance of Christ. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so this is the uh, this is the Antichrist. He is going to set himself up to be worshipped as God. Later on, he will substitute an idol so that if he's not there personally, then people can come and worship, uh, worship the idol. And people will attribute to him every aspect of it. He will solve all of their problems. They won't have to pay their mortgages anymore. They won't have to worry about health insurance. There'll be universal worldwide health insurance for all the nations. I heard somebody today that was interviewed said, we got to quit. We need to be like every other nation in the world and have universal health care. I didn't know that that really worked in every other nation in the world. So he's going to have everything. Everything. And so all the things that we see from Hitler to Saddam Hussein going all the way back to, to the promises of Napoleon, they're all going to be personified and accomplished by the Antichrist. And verse 5, there was given to him. Who gave it to him? God allowed this to take place. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Uh, the phrase that this, this idea that he was given to him shows the sovereign control that God has over all of the events of history. This is reinforced in passages such as Revelation 6.4, Revelation 6.8, Revelation 7.2, uh, Revelation 9.5. We saw it in Daniel, in Daniel uh, 4. Uh, Daniel uh, 4, 17, 25, and 32, dealing with the um, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. His arrogance was seen in Daniel, in Daniel 7, 8, in Daniel 7, 20, Daniel 7, 25, that's 7, 8, 20, 25, and 11, 36. I'll talk about the boastful words, the arrogance of the Antichrist. So God grants him authority to, to act for only 42 months. Now, the 
tribulation period is identified by Daniel 9, uh, 26, 29 is the 70th week of Daniel. 70th week is seven-year period, seven periods of seven, literally. So it's seven years. Half of seven years is three-and-a-half years. So it's divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. So he has this authority to act for three-and-a-half years. Well, three-and-a-half years is 42 months. So this is this terminology here gives us a a solid chronological chronological peg. Is it going to be the first half or the second half? Well, it's got to be the first. I mean, it's got to be the second half because it's going to end with his defeat. It's not talking about the first half. So his real power and control is going to come in the second half of the tribulation period. He is not in that kind of a position in the first half of the tribulation. It's not until after the uh, prophet, false prophet, I mean the two prophets ascend to heaven that he really takes over as an unopposed uh, tyrant. Then in verse 6, we read, he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. This is the orientation of this empire. It is extremely religious. It's just as religious as the United States of America in all of its liberal, self-righteous, anti-God secularism is today. Secularism is just as religious as any other kind, uh, any any as Islam, as Christianity, as Mormonism, is just as religious. Uh, we're just do because people want to say that if you don't believe in God, you're not religious. But if the statement there is a God is a religious statement, then the opposite must also be a religious statement. And the statement that there is no God is just as religious. So any system that removes God is just as religious as a system that has God. But this system doesn't remove God. It has a whole system of worship oriented to the Antichrist and worshiping a man rather than our maker. So he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. So he ridicules God. He hates God. We saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. He attacks the saints of God. He blasphemes his name, that is the character of God, his tabernacle, that is heaven, his dwelling place in in heaven, that is those who dwell in heaven. So he assaults everything that is taught in the Scripture. (coughs) And verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is truly a global empire. There is nothing in the language that indicates it's only the ten-nation confederacy. That is stage one of his of his establishing of his his rule and authority, the ten-nation confederacy. And then he's going to become have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation over the entire uh, entire world. And God is going to give him permission to make war with the saints and to have victory over them. So this means there's just going to be a massive uh, extermination or attempt to exterminate all believers. Now, if you think about that, that is a very difficult thing to do. If you ever have the opportunity to read any of the anything on the Holocaust, on the attempt by by the Nazis to destroy the Jews, and they ended up. 
about what was it, about five million, six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. It wiped out a third of all Jews on the earth. But think about that. The logistics crushed and destroyed the uh, Third Reich. If they had not diverted all of the resources that they did to to the destruction of the Jews, they would have easily won the war. But they to move that many Jews to the eastern part of the empire, to Auschwitz and Treblinka and to all of the other camps in, in Poland, meant that they had to take all of this rolling stock, all these boxcars, offline for moving military equipment and devoted to moving the Jews to Poland. That was a massive amount of of rolling stock from on their railways that, that got diverted from the war effort. The next thing they had was just the personnel to control, to, manu- to move, to plan, to staff the, uh, the death camps, uh, took men off the front line, took good men off the front line. And then they had, if they killed, if you go out and you kill 3,000 people today, and you're going to kill another 3,000 tomorrow and another 3,000 the next day and another 3,000 after that, you have to have a highly efficient system to get rid of the bodies because you're generating 3,000 carcasses a day, and at the end of, the, of a week, you will have generated 21,000 carcasses. And if you do the math on that, that is incredibly difficult to dig enough graves to bury that many people on a daily basis and if you're going to cremate them in a crematorium and you're going to burn that many bodies, that many bodies generates an incredible amount of heat. So you have to construct your crematoriums in a, in, in a certain way to do that, but it's going to produce an enormous amount of uh, smoke and everything that went with it. And they had a horrible time trying to do it. They just had a terrible time. And that and the point I'm making and the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing that is because that is just something very small and minor compared to the numbers of Christians that the Antichrist is going to try to kill during uh, this part of the tribulation period. He's, he's going to really have to ratchet up and come up with some, some uh, new, incredible new technology in order to try to, to slaughter and all of those Christians and to get rid of all the bodies. This is a mammoth task. So he's not going to get it all done in a day or two. It's going to, it's going to be a process throughout the entire second half of the tribulation period. And then we come to verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Notice the term, all who dwell on the earth. That's not saying every human being. Again and again, we have this phrase related to earth dwellers in Revelation. This is talking about all of the unbelievers who are, whose volition they have, they've hardened their own heart. It's said in concrete, they're not going to ever trust in Christ. And these are the ones who will worship him. These are the ones whose names have never been written in the book of life. But there are going to be millions we know that are saved during the tribulation period. And because they're saved, their name, because they trust in Christ as their Savior, their name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. But these are the unbelievers, the ones who never trust Christ. And so their, their name is not written in the book of life, not because they worship the beast, but because they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. 
And so it is described as the book of life. There's two books that are opened up at the Great White Throne Judgment. The book of life records all the believers. The book of works records all the works of unbelievers. The book of life is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth because it is the Lamb of God who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And then there is an exhortation, a challenge. Let anyone who has an ear, let him hear. We might say if anyone is really positive, believe this. Listen, pay attention. That's the same line that we saw in Revelation 2 and 3 in the seven letters to the seven churches. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If you're really positive, pay attention. But notice, it doesn't say anything about the church. Why? church didn't hear. See, in all the other places, if anyone in the church has an ear, let him hear, but not hear. It doesn't mention church here. Because the church is gone. The church was raptured before the tribulation began. Just another passage to uh, reinforce the view of a pre-trib, uh, pre-trib rapture. And then in verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. This is just a restatement of the uh, basic principle of capital punishment, an eye for an eye, and, uh, ear for an ear. It just... If anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. And then the last line, and this is the really interesting line, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, the best way to understand this, I may come back next time since we're right at the end, but what he is, what John is saying here is he states a principle in the if clause that there are those who are going to, if they give themselves over to the Antichrist, to war and to violence, then they will reap what they sow. But what's important is for the saints to endure in obedience to God and not to be caught up in uh, the vindictiveness and hostility of trying to change the nature of the of the fourth kingdom. They have to persevere. They have to endure. They have to not allow the attacks on them to be a reason for them to get involved in wrong action. Two wrongs don't make it, make it, make it right. And Dr. Walbert in his commentary says that because the, 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 those principles will be in effect through the tribulation period, captivity, uh, violence, that what the believer needs to pray for, uh, needs to remember, and he states it this way, this calls for patient endurance. The believer has to endure in obedience and be faithful to the application of God's word in the tribulation, in the tribulation period. That is their role. They do not need to get sucked into the uh, modus operandi of the unbeliever during the tribulation period. Okay, we'll come back next time to pick up in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, looking at the second beast, the Antichrist. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to recognize that there is going to be a time in the future when evil will come to a great flowering and that evil will finally be punished. Father, we do not live in that time because we're still here on the earth. We know that we're in the church age and, and that we still have a mission, and that mission is to represent you and to proclaim the gospel as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and to teach your word, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to be involved in uh, ministry in the local in the local church. Father, we pray that even though we see the same trends of the cosmic system around us in our nation and other nations, and that there are still all sorts of threats and uncertainties, we know that there is absolute certainty and stability in you, and that we can therefore relax, trust in you, and that we need to focus, we need to endure, we need to keep our minds focused on what our task is, on why we have been called, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.